2: You post your entire life online. Wearable computers record what you do and where you are. But is surveillance improving your life or intruding on it? The line between Big Data and Big Brother. It's I spy on Big Picture Science. We live in a society replete with technological gadgets. You've got a need? Well, there's an app for that. Apps for everything from tracking our sleep cycles to monitoring our homes from
3: far away.
1: Oh, honey, I can't believe it. Here we are in the loo.
3: Yeah, hang on. I never turned off the garbage disposal at home. There, done. You know, we've been gone two weeks. I'm going to launch the Roomba.
1: Some apps allow us to share with the world the most private, or what used to be private, details of our lives. I'm Molly Bentley.
2: I'm Seth Shostak. Some people have enthusiastically embraced this technology while others have found themselves unwillingly exposed by these public confessionals. Wait a minute, that's me changing in the gym locker room. How did this end up on YouTube? That was yesterday. And for those with more sinister motives, criminals, corporations, and some argue government agencies, the omnipresent technology has made their jobs a lot easier.
1: where once it took a gumshoe with binoculars on stakeout or a gloved hand fingering through a cabinet of manila files marked personal. Now, digging into the lives of others can be done with a click on a computer from a cubicle, and you don't even need the cubicle.
3: There, just downloaded the social security numbers from every retiree in Brevard County, Florida. Now to tap into some of that pension money.
2: It's Big Picture Science, where we step back to get a big picture view of science and technology and where they're headed. The rise of surveillance technology seems to have privacy going the way of Latin grammar lessons, but some of these technologies may protect us and the planet.
1: So what's the upshot? Have we entered the surveillance state in George Orwell's 1984, or is it simply that with every new technology there's inevitable pushback, or is it something in between?
2: Here in the Silicon Valley, new high-tech gadgetry appears about as frequently as Hollywood blockbusters and often with just as much fawning PR.
1: And critical review. And perhaps no device has been greeted with as much consternation as the one described here.
4: It looks a bit like a pair of glasses and it looks like it has a little thumb drive device on the right side of the frame and there's a clear bit at the end of that thumb drive looking device and there's also a small aperture for a camera right there. The clear end, of course, is the small screen that people use. It kind of sits in the upper right corner of your vision.
1: It sounds like the sort of exotic gadget that James Bond would get from Q before an assignment. But these specialized glasses, equipped with a virtual computer screen and a tiny camera, are not some newfangled spy equipment. At least, that's what the makers of Google Glass say.
2: Robert Gale, a social media scholar at the University of Utah, is raising an eyebrow about the wearable computers developed by Google. A mind-meld with a surveillance state is his article in the online issue of The Week. And in it, he outlines his concerns about the threat to privacy of Google Glass.
1: The high-tech glasses run about $1,500, but early adopters aren't put off by the
4: cost. The frames vary because now people can buy custom frames for them. They can get sunglasses, they can get prescription lenses, or you can just have them as frames. And the way users control glass is through voice commands or a touchpad on the side. So specifically, you can say, okay, glass, take a picture, or tap aside to take pictures. And when you ask it for search results, it actually reads it back to you, and you hear it largely through bone conduction in your skull. So it's very quiet for anyone around you, but you can hear it quite well. Okay. So you're walking down the street, you're driving, uh, you say, okay, glass, this switches on. And what does it do for you right away? Some of the stuff you can do are check a map, for example, if you're trying to find your way somewhere. A pretty interesting feature is if you're in a foreign country and you can't read the signs, it'll actually translate signs for you. You can see videos. You can do Google Hangouts, so you can interact with uh, friends through it. It also has GPS.
2: Okay. Well, uh, I I can think of some benefits to that. I mean, obviously, it's convenient. Uh, On the other hand, it sounds to me like it might be a little dangerous if you're doing this while you're driving. But... Mm -hmm your objection to Google Glass doesn't have to do with safety, as I understand it. It has to do with your concerns about surveillance.
4: What, what are those concerns? Well, we have one of the most powerful tech firms on the planet where it's socially acceptable to have your entire digital life flow through them, flow through Google. So your search history, your browsing habits, locations, your purchases, phone use, your internet connection. And now they want to link and network our vision. Uh, they want to have what we see flow through Google. And all of this is happening in the backdrop of all the revelations we're hearing about the National Security Agency and the GCHQ in the UK. And so I see a couple dangers here. One is, and I hear this all the time, that privacy is dead. That basically this means that we've given up privacy, that we're okay with being monitored and monitoring each other. The other danger, if you will, of Google Glass is that as people see it, people will resist it. And we're seeing kind of clumsy examples of that, bar fights, banning it from restaurants. But there also could be more systemic resistance to Google Glass and other surveillance systems because people are connecting what's happening in Silicon Valley to what's happening in Washington, D.C., the connections between data gathering by, say, Google, Facebook, and so on, to data gathering by governments and the constant surveillance that we're always subjected to.
2: Well, the assumption here, and I suppose it's a justifiable one, is that everything that's going into your Glass, everything that it's showing you, all those data, they're, they're not just thrown away when you're done with them. They're just kept or can be kept.
4: Precisely, yeah. It's kind of um, a notorious issue with cloud computing, and Google Glass is a cloud computer. It doesn't really have much storage on board. Everything you do is stored somewhere else. And it's kind of notorious that when you try to delete something from a cloud server, They say, yes, it's deleted, but they have it backed up somewhere. And the reason why they do that is they're trying to gather data on us to understand us as consumers and sell our attention to advertisers. So it's in their interest to gather as much information as possible about us.
2: You tell a couple of stories of responses to Google Glass, and one was at the Lost Lake Cafe in Seattle. Can you tell me what happened there?
4: Yeah, so that cafe, the Lost Lake Cafe, banned Glass. This started as kind of a joke on Facebook. Uh, The owner posted... I'm not gonna allow anyone with glass in my cafe. And sure enough, when somebody came in and wore glass in the cafe, he was kicked out. And the concern there was other patrons might not wanna be recorded. And this caused kind of a minor uproar in the blogosphere. Uh, Some people came to the defense of the glassware saying he can wear that technology where he wants. And some people, actually I would say more people came to the defense of the cafe owner saying, no, that's his cafe. He can decide who he can serve, who he shouldn't serve, and, and what rules they have about recording and cameras and so on. I'm trying to understand the difference here between, you know, my my
2: smartphone again uh, or you know, a video camera or something like that. I mean, there are a lot of ways I could be surveilling the people around me or whatever I'm doing. Uh, this sounds like a difference, a quantitative difference, not a qualitative difference, that with glass I might be doing this 10 hours a day and in all circumstances, and lots of people might be doing it, and it goes via Google. I mean, are are those the critical differences between this and the ability I have with my phone to do surveillance?
4: Yeah. In many ways, I see Glass as an extension of what we can already do with smartphones. So we can already make videos and take pictures very quickly um, and send them out on the internet. We can communicate with others very quickly. What I see as new about Glass, as well as other wearable computers like Fitbit, for example, is a way that they're tied to our bodies even more tightly than the smartphone itself. It's like we're watching the computer sink into our skin and we're becoming augmented. And Google, in fact, is even working on a contact lens version of Glass. So the question I have about Glass specifically, who controls these worn computers? Do we control them or does a huge tech firm? Are they like prosthetic limbs that we can move around or are they external attachments that somebody else controls? Now's the time to ask these questions about these technologies. What would Google do with these data in the worst-case scenario? One of the big issues with Google, in my view, is that because so much of our lives flow through it, that it becomes a very tempting target for governments all around the world to come knocking and say, hey, give me information on X, Y, and Z person. And oh, by the way, you can't tell them that I'm gathering this information. When you have such centralization, so much information held by, say, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and so on. They become very tempting targets for governments. And when Google or other companies want to move into a new country, set up shop, offer their services, states recognize this and they come to them and say, okay, you can do business here, but we have certain rules and they include, you give us this information on such and such a request. And then it's up to Google to say yes or no. In the case of China, Google famously withdrew, but they want to do business the world over, and they're willing to play by the rules of governments, and that can include helping in surveillance of citizens.
2: Well, let's at least spend a little bit of time here looking at the benefits, because there are some. The New York Times reports that a surgeon at Duke Medical Center records all his surgeries. It allows him to archive his work, of course, but and he can't stream live yet. But, you know, pretty soon he should be able to do that. I don't know. And that means that Google Glass would be, you know, potentially very useful in training new surgeons, Mm -hmm. sharing their work. And that sounds like a very beneficial thing. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, there's many benefits to a wearable technology. Earlier, I mentioned translating signs from one language to another if you're traveling. As you say, they can aid in surgery. I can easily imagine a use for them for journalists uh, out in the field, it can help with people with disabilities. In fact, computer prostheses help people with disabilities all the time. For me, as a professor, I can imagine using something like glass to teach classes. I could look up information really quickly. So what I would argue here is that, yeah, there's a lot of good things with glass. We should try to find ways to emphasize these good elements while removing the bad elements. And that, for me, that is the the centralization and the surveillance aspects of Google.
2: Well, then finally, Rob, what do we do? I mean, I, I hear your concerns here. They sound like uh, genuine concerns. They sound like uh, quite reasonable concerns. But you know, nobody's going to stop the juggernaut of Google Glass. Uh, it's going to get on the market. It is on the market. You can buy them now. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, this train's coming
4: down the track. So what would you see as the preferred outcome here? What can we do? Well, first I'd say no technology is inevitable. Every technology is marked not only by technological progress, but also by social and cultural norms and values. Every technology has values attached. So now's the time to have the debate about this technology. So what I would say is you should support privacy advocates. I'm thinking of the Electronic Privacy Information Center, Privacy International, Electronic Frontier Foundation, the Center for Digital Democracy. These are the folks who are always lobbying, always fighting for regulations to protect our privacy from overzealous data gathering. I would support anyone who challenges the NSA right now. I think that's one of the major fights that we have to have right now. And this isn't limited to government. Uh, Read Google's privacy policy and write them with your concerns. They do listen to criticism. They listen to criticism about glass all the time. We can develop cultural standards for glass use so we can have more private spaces. Robert Gale, thank you so very much for talking
2: with us today. Thank you.
1: Robert Gale is a social media scholar and assistant professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Utah. His article, A Mind Meld with a Surveillance State, appeared in the online issue of The Week.
2: Some might think that Google Glass is downright Orwellian in its ability to provide continuous monitoring.
1: Whether or not it is, one tech observer can list which gadgets are. Up next, technology torn straight from the pages of the novel 1984 that we use today.
2: Plus surveillance tools that are designed to do good.
1: It's iSpy on Big Picture Science.
2: In George Orwell's novel 1984, Winston Smith and Julia live under omnipresent government surveillance. Cameras are everywhere, as are the thought police.
1: Yep, we're now going to invoke Big Brother in our conversation about computer technology. But before you say that's presumptuous, Apple Computer did it itself in a famous TV ad that aired that year.
3: On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984.
2: And the year 1984 didn't resemble Orwell's dark vision. But some would argue that today we're closer. It's the 30th anniversary of the release of the Apple Macintosh and of Orwell's dystopic world. And for some, the visions of the computer industry and the novelist have merged. To them... Ever more sophisticated computers have given rise to a surveillance state.
1: And fuel for that idea is found in the article Seven Sinister Technologies from Orwell's 1984 That Are Still a Threat. Author Hal Rappaport penned it for the Sci-Fi Channel's online magazine. And, okay, he doesn't really think we're living in Oceania, the society described by Orwell, but the creeping parallels give even a science fiction writer the chills.
2: Hal, what do you think George Orwell might think about surveillance technology if he were with us today?
5: Walking around Times Square in New York, walking around seeing all the screens showing constant streams of information, I think he would probably really say, yes, this is exactly what I said was going to happen.
2: Well, let's talk about some of the technology that you write about that we have today, that bears an eerie resemblance to 1984, and one of the most memorable of those was the telescreen that the ruling party in Oceana used to keep subjects under constant surveillance. How did they work in Orwell's world, and and do we have any uh, analogs today?
5: In George Orwell's world, the telescreens were two-way. While they were constantly showing a stream of propaganda media, at any time, someone could be tapping in and watching you through your telescreen that you had in your home or in any public place telescreens were everywhere and you never knew when you were being watched in the book Winston Smith is writing in his journal and he makes sure that he's out of the way of the telescreen so that nobody can see him the uh, resemblance of our you know our flat panel wall-mounted televisions uh, is a little ominous how much they look very much like the ones he described but Fortunately, most of ours are not two-way as of yet. However, if you consider that I've got two laptops open on my desk and both of them have cameras pointed at me, uh, it does beg the question of how much further
2: does it need to go. You've written also about eye tracking systems. Tell me what an eye tracking system is.
5: Tracking systems for the human eye where they can actually do facial recognition. They can actually track what you're looking at on the screen. They can track, basically, if somebody was looking at your face and you were looking at an ad on a screen, they could tell by watching where your eyes look to see what you were interested in, uh, where your eyes got bigger, where your pupils dilated when you looked at a certain item, uh, using it for marketing and for targeted
2: advertising. Yeah, I've seen that done. And actually, this technology, I, I must confess, I've seen this technology even 40 years ago, uh, where they would bounce a little bit of infrared light off somebody's eyeball, and they could tell where it was where it was aimed
5: yeah. they were using it for uh, as a mouse uh, or, or the possibility for a replacement for a mouse.
2: But Hal, are eye tracking systems actually used in the novel nineteen eighty four or do they just have an Orwellian feel about them?
5: I'd say they have an Orwellian feel, that complete control that Orwell expresses in his book he would have probably included eye-tracking technology had the possibility even occurred.
2: Okay, Hal, you write that in Orwell's world, they had the thought police. What role do they play, and why do you think some neuroscience research might allow us one day to, to have, if you will, thought police, to read people's thoughts? Sure.
5: In Orwell's world, thought crime was considered to be the ultimate crime, and they actually had the thought police. So if you were thinking something that was individual or against the party or something maybe politically incorrect you you were committing thought crime and i think we can draw a, a parallel today to social media which is actually bringing all of our thoughts out into the world voluntarily that you know, as well as some of the modern uh, research now, which is going on, which actually has the ability to almost read minds. There's a team in Princeton that's using MRI-like technology to map thoughts. Where. They can record the brain's response to a specific thought, and then if you think that thought again, they can actually tell that you're doing it without actually knowing it.
2: Well, how accurately could they do that? I mean, <laughs> to what extent would they know what I was thinking? If I was talking to myself, could they actually get the words?
5: Well, it's in its infancy, but a team in Princeton actually started it out, and they could actually map out when somebody said a word or had a thought, and then they, if somebody had it again, they could recreate it. In other words, if you said carrot and then they checked your brain and then said carrot again but they weren't listening to you they could tell that that was the word that you said and then another team at Berkeley expanded on it and actually mapped images to some of this so where they could actually retrieve some of the images now this technology is all in its infancy but it does beg the question of where will it go in 20 years
2: the phrase who controls the past controls the future who controls the present controls the past classic Orwell. How does that apply today, Hal?
5: Well, consider this. Most of our information comes from the internet. Uh, if you look at a source like Wikipedia, and again, not to, to demonize Wikipedia, I think it's wonderful, but ask yourself when the last time you cracked open a real encyclopedia was to find out a fact. We go to this one source of information and accept that that source is gospel. For all kinds of facts, we provide it as a proof for college papers all the time. Wikipedia is an accepted source of information. And if someone were to take control of that source of information, they could control the future by controlling the past.
2: Well, finally, Hal, do you uh, know that we've been recording this conversation?
5: Yes, I do. And uh, I hope uh, no one decides to tag me to follow me because of anything I've said in this conversation.
2: Hal Rappaport, thanks so very much for talking with us.
5: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Hal Rappaport is a technology consultant and the author of the paranormal thriller Hath No Fury. He wrote his article, Seven Sinister Technologies from Orwell's 1984, for the Sci Fi Channel's online magazine, and you'll find a link to it on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Okay, so are comparisons to Big Brother a reach? Well, some of the discussions you hear these days about a surveillance state can edge into the hysterical. And yet, there are a lot of tracking technologies out there that follow our every move. Google Glass, other wearable computers coming down the pike, smartphones, online cookies, online data that cannot be expunged, webcams, public CCTV cameras at ATMs, in stores, banks, and on the street? And to top it off, the National Security Agency's surveillance program, PRISM, that sifts through your cell phone and email communications.
2: Okay, now I'm nervous. What kind of society are we creating? More networked or more nosy?
1: Susan Landau is a professor of cybersecurity policy at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and she's the author of Surveillance or Security, the Risks Posed by New Wiretapping Technologies, and Privacy on the Line, the Politics of Wiretapping and Encryption.
2: Now that her expertise is in the open, let's ask her about secrecy. Professor Landau, how close are we to living in a surveillance society?
6: Well, surveillance society depends both on technology and law and policy. So if you think about technology, everybody, at least in the United States, and Europe, in many parts of the developed world, are carrying cell phones, or in particular smartphones with GPS in them, and they list your location everywhere. That's real surveillance. On the other hand, it depends on the laws and the policy governing the use of that data. So the, the question really depends on a much larger picture than just the technology. So,
2: what could the government, for example, learn with this uh, cell phone data, the, the metadata that they collect? I mean, is that interesting to them? Is it something? It's
6: incredibly interesting to them. You follow somebody, and if you look at where they are in the morning, and where they are at 11, and where they are at 6, you know where their home is, where their work is. If you notice they come back from work every day at 6 o'clock, and then one day they leave work at 4, and they go to a bar and then the next Monday they don't go to work, you've just figured out what happened. If they go to the gynecologist's office and then they call um, family, and then shortly afterwards they go to the hospital and then they go to a surgeon's office, you've just figured out that they've probably been diagnosed with a serious disease. You can figure out tremendous amounts of information
2: simply from location. Have cell phones made a real difference here or could you do this with hardwired phones just as easily?
6: On hardwired phones, you don't actually know who's on the line unless you're listening. So when somebody calls my house, they don't know if they're talking to me, my husband, a friend who's visiting. That is, the government doesn't know that from the connection. That's the first difference. The second difference is nobody carried hardwired phones around with them the whole day. They used pay phones if they needed to make a call. So unless you were deliberately tapping an individual, you didn't have that information.
2: But the obvious question is, why would the government even be interested in this sort of personal information? Why should I be concerned if the government learns that I've, I don't know, gone to the supermarket this afternoon or I've talked to my wife or something like that.
6: In the society we live in in the United States, I think we're not so worried about the US government knowing whether or not you've talked to your wife or gone to the supermarket after you've talked to your wife. In other societies, if you think about the Stasi Society of East Germany pre the fall of the wall, that kind of information turned out to be terribly interesting to the government where one in six um, members of society actually reported to the government about other people and what was happening. They were informers. Um, In other countries where we have interests about terrorism, the track of somebody's communications can be really revealing about where they are, who they're associating with, whether they are about to launch a terrorist attack. So we don't have the U.S. government doing that kind of tracking within the United States. But there is that kind of trafficking happening in other parts of the world.
2: Historically, the government has always kind of snooped, at least in, to some degree. I'm thinking of, uh, I don't know, J. Edgar Hoover and so forth and so on. Are people more upset now? Is there something fundamentally different? Is it that the technology has really changed the uh, the parameters of surveillance?
6: Technology is tremendously different. Ten years ago, cell phones were cell phones, and the location information was which tower you were near and which sector of the tower. And it was the phone company that got that information. The government could get it under subpoena, but otherwise it was the phone company who had it. Now you have a smartphone. It has apps on it. Many of the apps, which have no reason to get such information, are collecting your very fine-grained location data available via GPS. Then there's online social networks. Even if you're not on a member of Facebook or a different online social network, other people, friends of yours may be, are likely to be, and they're releasing information about you. They have pictures of you. They mention they met you for dinner. They mention what you are doing next week, and so on. And then finally, we're moving to a world of Internet of Things. Your car tires are going to talk to your car. Your car brakes might be talking to the car company. Your thermostat may be talking to the power company. And all of these create a Very fine-grained picture of what time you got up in the morning, whether you had coffee, who you're seeing, and so on. It's a very different world.
2: So when people compare the rise of surveillance tools today to uh, George Orwell, Big Brother, 1984, maybe it's not so overblown. I know that here in California there's been considerable objection to the uh, power company putting in smart meters, which uh, tell them, you know, when you're using uh, the energy and when you're not.
6: Right. And so they're supposed to do some level of anonymization, that is aggregation and anonymization. A recent example for me is driving in New York. The toll booth that I went in through to get into Manhattan no longer has a toll collector. So instead, they take a photo of my license plate, and then I get a bill in the mail. And I pay the bill. But now there was a record of the fact that I crossed into Manhattan, where there never used to be. So there are places where there's real substantive change. I think... In answer to your question about Orwell. The issue isn't whether the information is going to be collected for all sorts of reasons including the young economics where it's so much cheaper to send me the bill through the mail rather than have a toll collector. Economics will drive more and more of this automated data collection. The question is going to be use and how we control the use and that's going to be key and that's laws
2: and policy as well as some technology. How do you react to the claim of many of the tech companies that they're going for open access, that they're collecting all these data? And, you know, if they're only going to serve you better advertising, you could say that, well, I mean, that's even in my interest. I I might find them annoying, but on the other hand, they are occasionally useful. Is this all about who controls the data or uh, does the open access – argument saying that it's all going to be open. Anyhow, make it irrelevant who controls the data because anybody can get to the data. Well, it's not the case that anybody can get to the data
6: because the companies in Silicon Valley and other places that collect the data are not going to share it with their competitors. So I don't I don't believe the argument that the data is open. There's a more subtle and deeper issue going on. And that's that when you inure people to the idea that they are acting in private, that their behavior is private, that when they enter Central Park, when they meet a friend at a pub, that that action is a private action. When when people lose that sense, they change their behaviors. One of the things that the church committee said back in the 1970s when they investigated all the surveillance that the U.S. government had been doing. They said that when you do surveillance of of political organizations and you do this mass surveillance on society, what you do is you chase out people in the middle. And you have people on both ends. The extremists are happy to continue acting politically, but people in the middle stop. And that's, of course, very bad for democracy. When people have the sense that they're being constantly surveilled, they don't try experimental ideas in public, whether they're art, whether they're literature, whether they're just speaking. And that's the long-term damage.
2: So is that how you answer the question? If somebody just, you know, puts it to you and says, look, you know, I I don't like these cameras everywhere. The camera's on every street corner in London and so forth. But on the other hand, those kinds of cameras helped us catch the Boston bomber. So I've got this trade-off." And uh, how how do you come down on that? Do you say, look, this trade-off's not worth it? Or do you say, well, uh, we're just going to have to find a happy medium in there?
6: So with respect to the Boston bomber, yes, it absolutely helped catch the Boston bomber. It helped catch many years ago the two kids who had kidnapped a a three-year-old from a mall in England. But in fact, the crime in England has not decreased as a result of the CCTVs. They have not prevented crime. And the question is, what kind of society you want to live in? If we had total surveillance of every action, if there was a CCTV camera on every corner, I live on a small, rural town ro- street, 15 houses on the street, if there was a CCTV camera down the street that showed when I entered the conservation land at the end of the day, walking my dog and so on, that would have no appreciable impact on crime, it would have a tremendous impact on people's sense of privacy and self. We saw its impact in East Germany, we see its impact in North Korea, you see its impact in China.
2: Do you think that this is going to lead to some sort of, I don't know, new legislation or something? I mean, I I don't know what my rights to privacy really are. I, I can't think of what's in the Constitution that specifies to what degree I am entitled to privacy.
6: So the Constitution doesn't specifically mention privacy, but privacy rights have been interpreted through various of the amendments. This includes the fourth, against unreasonable search and seizure. It includes the 14th, which was used to protect freedom of association during the civil rights era, when the state of Alabama demanded the membership roles of people in the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And the NAACP didn't want to release that list exactly because their members would have been in danger, physical danger and danger for their lives during that that period. And the supreme court said no freedom of association allows them that privacy and the, the organization didn't have to release its membership there's freedom to read what you read is a very private thing um and it's one of the reasons that i'm uncomfortable using a kindle i don't want amazon to know how slowly i read a particular page or that i'm reading all these mystery novels instead of the more serious things that i think of myself as reading those privacy pieces are run through the Constitution, and they protect us against the government. But of course, they don't protect us typically against private actors.
2: So Susan, what's the most disturbing trend that you've seen in the rise of monitoring devices or surveillance tools?
6: The implementation without consideration of privacy, or in many cases, security, which is, of course, a Silicon Valley or industry rush to market. It's not just limited to Silicon Valley, It certainly extends to Redmond and to other parts of not only this country, but other countries. But it's the rush to market that causes people to put out products without properly thinking of privacy or security. And that's very harmful. I don't know the right way to handle that. In the security sphere, everybody is on the same side. That is, we want more security, but we have not instituted liability to actually enable it to happen.
2: Susan Landau, thank you so very much for talking with us.
1: Thank you. If you'd like to keep an eye out for Susan Landau's work, she's a professor of cybersecurity policy at Worcester Polytechnic Institute and the author of Surveillance or Security, The Risks Posed by New Wiretapping Technologies and Privacy on the Line, The Politics of Wiretapping and Encryption.
2: Coming up, the benefits of keeping an eye on things. Cameras that help protect us, our pets, and perhaps even the planet.
1: It's iSpy Spy on Big Picture Science, where we step back to give you a wide-angle view on science and technology, and we do it without closed-circuit television cameras.
0: With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Okay, we've been looking in this episode of Big Picture Science at the increasing ability of cameras and recording devices to track our every move. But sometimes this is exactly what we want— and that might give you
1: pause. What follows is a true story of espionage.
3: I'm Gary Niederhoff, producer of Big Picture Science, and I'm standing in my kitchen with my cats. And facing the side of the house, we have a door with a cat door installed for them. And usually we hear the cat door. When we got new cats a couple of years ago and started letting them go out, We eventually noticed that they were sort of looking at the cat door very suspiciously from inside and sort of becoming alarmed when one another would come through it. So we started thinking perhaps somebody else was coming through the cat door. So we got a camera, just an off-the-shelf network IP camera. The camera sits on a small table facing directly across from the door. It has a built-in motion sensor which we can adjust as well as night vision for when it gets dark. The camera runs 24-7 and whenever there's movement at the cat door it collects images and uploads them to a computer while we sleep. And we can access those images through our smartphones or computers or whatever to see what's been coming in. So we got the camera set up here pointed right at the cat door. And tomorrow morning when I wake up I'll be checking to see if any intruders have breached the cat door. All right, it's the next morning, and I'm looking at the website that shows all of the activity on the camera from last night. And sure enough, there's a picture of me playing with the cat door in last night's recording. And the very next picture is a neighbor cat coming into our house. And I can look at the timestamp. It was 2.40 a.m. and 11 seconds, and he left 2.40 a.m. and 53 seconds. So he did not stay long. I just checked the cat bowls, saw there was nothing to eat, and left. Which is good news. This cat lives two doors up, and I call him Big Steve. He's a really big black and white cat, and he scares our cats quite a bit. So we've tried implementing a few additions to this technology to try and scare him away. Because he's black and white, we set up a sensor to tell if a cat had black fur, because neither of ours do. We originally had it set up to set off a recording of my voice yelling, get out of here, cat. And that worked a couple of times, but he got used to it and started coming in all the time again. And our most recent experiment, which hasn't really gelled yet, is to have that sensor trigger our Roomba, our little vacuum, to launch when he enters the house. So that as soon as he comes in, it gets the message. He'll hear the tones of the Roomba starting and the whirring of its motor, and hopefully that'll scare him away. But we're still working on that one.
2: Well, Gary now has real experience with real cat burglars. I always wondered where the term came from. Okay, of course, anyone can install a camera and monitor others, whether they have four legs or two, or their property, and this can be a good thing. Nonetheless, with every new technology, there are going to be some people who are fearful. It's always been that way.
1: And here's an example. When household electricity made its appearance in the 1880s, a lot of people were very frightened. Who knew what the invisible energy could do as it traveled through the wires of your house? There were reports of it killing people and, of course, it did kill some people. But now wall sockets are as much a part of our everyday lives as indoor plumbing, which, by the way, also provoked fear in some.
2: Yes, that's true. Certain bodily necessities performed while sitting over water were considered unnatural, and unhealthy. People were
1: fearful of those bodily functions? They they somehow thought that it would ruin your health. I don't know how. I'm flush with embarrassment by the direction of this discussion. (laughs) Well,
2: it's obviously been a drain on you. So, let's face it, new technologies are always going to scare some people and sometimes justifiably. Consider x-ray machines for fitting shoes or Freon coolant for your air conditioner, DDT. But Knee-jerk reactions to new technology, well, they're always the first ones in the game, and they can turn out to be overly negative. And that may prevent us from envisioning the practical benefits of the technology. Surveillance
1: technology may be an example. Take surveillance satellites. Yes, they're used by the military, but they're also used by the Weather Service, and other groups can use them to track everything from forest fires to migrating whales. And now,
2: putting useful hardware in orbit is something that's not just the purview of NASA or other big organizations. A San Francisco-based space startup has done it. Planet Labs, founded by former NASA scientists. Most satellites launched by the space agency or the phone company are, are the size of a small car, even a big car. A satellite from Planet Labs is the size of a glove compartment. And they've shot into space, more than two dozen of them, which they call doves.
1: These microsatellites work in concert to observe the Earth in real time. The imagery can be accessed for a fee for those who want to track things like the health of crops. But the company says that the images are intended to be accessible to everyone.
2: You'll be able to move forward and backwards in time to zoom in, zoom out as you look at photos of the planet taken days or even hours ago at a resolution higher than that of many current Earth-monitoring
1: satellites. These swarm satellites may be just the first of a wave of microsatellites that companies will build and launch, putting Earth under constant surveillance by private companies.
2: Molly went to meet one of the founders of Planet Labs, physicist Will Marshall. You could say one of the lads who launch.
1: Well, we're standing here in front of a number of your satellites. If I were to step outside right now, some of them are already in orbit, would they be able to see me if I were standing out on the streets of San Francisco?
7: No, they wouldn't be able to see you. There's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, One is that they're all in orbital planes that only pass over any particular point on the Earth's surface at one particular time of the day. Um, And secondly, that they can't see individual humans because we've chosen an optical resolution that's about three to five meters, which means you can just about see the canopy of a tree, but you can't see or track a human.
1: What is that, about thirteen feet somewhere in there? Uh,
7: Indeed, yeah, three to five meters is about ten to fifteen feet. So what we are constructing here is a large fleet of satellites such that we can image the entire Earth once a day. And why we think that's useful is that by doing that we can track deforestation, track the ice caps melting, help people improve agricultural yield, tracking disasters like floods, fires, missing planes. Those are the sorts of things that our satellites are designed for.
1: Could you give me a specific example? How could you improve, for example, crop yields with this constellation?
7: What we can do is tell crop health and crop yield in, um, with the satellite data and therefore help people to choose what to grow next season, if not improve their crops this season by re- realizing that they need to maybe add water or add fertilizer or things like that. So it's basically, it's part of what people call precision agriculture. It's giving precise information about the state of crops in different places so that it informs the farmer fast enough for them to make improvements to their crop.
1: So where are the satellites flying? What Are they in low Earth orbit?
7: Yes, they are in low Earth orbit. So we've got them in two different inclination bands. Uh, one in the uh, International Space Station orbit, because some of us have been dropped off by the International Space Station, and others in a polar orbit, that's specifically called a sun-synchronous orbit. The sun-synchronous orbit is a p- orbit to a plane that stays fixed with respect to the sun, so that actually what happens is the, the satellites always pass over the, every single point on the Earth's surface at the same time of day, the same local time, say 10.30 a.m., the, the 11 that we just launched on the NEPA rocket a month ago. They pass over wherever you are in the world roughly at 10 thirty a m local time
1: why so many they 're flying in constellation. Why do you have a, a number of them when won 't you just build one
7: by miniaturizing satellites, we can make many more of them and launch many more of them at once and then we started thinking about what are the applications of that when we turned our attention to earth imaging, which is one way in which you can use constellations of satellites. We realized that what we could do there was this greater coverage and frequency of coverage of the whole planet. With one satellite you just can't cover the planet on a daily basis at any reasonable resolution. And so what we are doing is with just over a hundred of these satellites we can cover the whole Earth every single day. is not possible with a single satellite. So
1: Now, you mentioned what we did at NASA. You used to work at NASA, I believe, on, but it points out that what NASA is able to do, and so NASA does take us to other planets and, and moons and so forth, but NASA also has Earth-observing mm-hmm. satellites. Mm-hmm. Why not let NASA do this? Why have a private company launch satellites into space?
7: We, we are focused here on Planet Labs is humanitarian and commercial applications. When you do earth imaging, there's scientific applications, there's humanitarian applications, there's commercial applications, there's military applications, there's all sorts of different applications. NASA's primary mandate is about science and exploration, and they do tend to take a longer design uh, cycle. We can use a much faster cycle in the private sector, and that is definitely utilized. In fact, we call it agile aerospace. What we basically mean by that is making Planet Labs more like a software development company. We release early, release often. This agile aerospace sort of allows us to strap our satellites to Moore's Law and all the developments that are happening there in in terms of increasing processor speeds or equivalents in sensor development and so forth uh, so that we constantly put more capability into this little box.
1: Let's look at some of the satellites themselves. Now, what we have here, maybe you can just describe what we're looking at. It looks like you have a number of satellites and they're in kind of an incubator I don't know if that's the purpose of this, of this transparent box but what is this?
7: We actually call it the nest um, so we call our satellites doves we call them doves because we have a sort of humanitarian mission for them and we call this the nest because it's where we store the doves before we launch them
1: Can I hold one? Yes, sure that Okay, might. so you're lifting yeah. up the, the nest
7: Yeah, okay well, so why do, can, can I just put it into your hands Yes on this platform?
1: Yes, you may do that, yes.
7: This one doesn't have solar arrays on it, so it's helpful because you can see what the inside looks like.
1: Well, I wonder if you could give us a physical description, Mm -hmm. and is there a way to describe the size of these satellites without using the term breadbox, bigger or smaller (laughs) than?
7: (laughs) Yeah, so their sizes are 10 by 10 by 30 centimeters. Uh, The front two-thirds is the telescope Mm -hmm. um, here, the back end is the camera. If you look down here now you can see the optical axis and there you can see it's a Cassegrain maxitov telescope and this flap at the top hosts the radios radio antenna that communicate down to the ground
1: so it's heavy but still as far as satellites go it feels light i've never tried to lift up hubble or the james webb or anything like that so i can't really compare it directly but it feels like in terms of something you're launching into space it's it's relatively light okay let's swap back now
7: so i'm just gonna put it back now yeah so that's true it's extremely light compared with a typical satellite it's uh, less than a thousandth of the mass
1: Now, you're not the only company in the Silicon Valley that has famously pledged to do good and not to do evil. (laughs) And now Google itself is under fire for uh, the development of Google Glass. Mm. One of the questions that comes up with some of these technologies is who has access to the data? And what is the case here with Planet Labs? Who will be able to have access to the images of Earth?
7: We believe that there are so many use cases of this data that the best thing that we can do is provide democratic access to the data. Uh, if it's a, the Kenyan farmer that needs uh, data for his or her crop field or whether it's this rich person in New York who's trying to bet on markets with the data, that, that both of those people can get access to the data and get the information they need to make smarter decisions.
1: Well, first of all, I don't know how you'd bet on the markets using um, the, the satellite data. I hope, was, that in, was that in jest?
7: No, no, there are really ways in which that can happen. So, for example, uh, you could track the output of all copper mines around the world or of oil soy fields, and maybe that relates to some financial market. Of course, that's a very financially heavy application, and that I was just trying to contrast with a very humanitarian application.
1: So the intent is to have public access to the data, not to provide data to customers.
7: It, we are. We certainly have customers. In fact, we already have a lot of customers. We're just going to ensure that Any customers can get access to it, not just the big playing clients.
1: In this age where we feel like everything is being observed and we can't get away from eyes, what is your response to people who may feel uncomfortable that there's another set of eyes in the sky, perhaps looking at them?
7: Well, that is something that we as citizens of this planet here all care about. We like everyone else don't want intrusion into our our private lives. What we have done with these satellites is ensure there are a resolution where you can't see people and track people, so that most of the privacy concerns just aren't there because of that. Moreover, our entire intent with this company is to try and do good, to try and have a positive impact on helping us to take care of our planet, essentially. We wouldn't be doing this if we did not think that the overwhelming uses of this data were going to be for massively positive things. For example, monitoring deforestation, for example, tracking the ice caps. and Just imagine the the potential utility of improving everyone's crop yields in all the different farmer fields around the world. That is a huge humanitarian impact, a huge positive humanitarian impact. With every new technology, there's good and bad uses. And we're very cognizant that that's possible with this type of technology, too. But I think the way we're approaching it significantly makes it biased towards all the positive applications.
1: Will Marshall, thank you so much for speaking with us.
7: Thanks a lot.
2: Will Marshall is a physicist and co-founder of Planet Labs.
1: Okay, well, we've come to the end of the episode, I Spy, and what have we learned?
2: Well, clearly, the technology that allows surveillance is only going to get more advanced, more detailed, more pervasive.
1: Well, yes, in the whole suite of new technologies, everything from Google Glass to these microsatellites, they may be beneficial, they may be harmful. We don't know. It's still very early days. And the main thing that we learned from Susan Landau is that the laws have not caught up to these technologies. Yes,
2: I think the bottom line is... No point in raging against this machine. The idea is to shape it to our needs.
1: And rage a little bit. Thanks to our stealthy production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
2: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
1: Whose ears have been attuned to I Spy. And if you'd like to sneak a peek at the Big Picture Science archive, you'll find it on our website, bigpicturescience.org.
2: If you're a podcast listener but you prefer to tune in to over-the-air radio because no one can track your listening habits, check out the listening on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Well, keep them to yourself. But do write us with praise at bigpicturescience at SETI.org. And now for some catty remarks. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch
5: podcast from TechCrunch.